Hey out there to everyone, and thank you for joining me for a historic episode of The Mark Guy Show. This is episode 24, and we are talking about a Donald Trump victory. I said in my previous podcast that probably my next one would be after the election, so after we knew the results, and I said I think I'm going to be talking about a Donald Trump victory, despite the fact that all the polls were really shifted toward Clinton. I think 538 was the one closest to, you know, most in favor of Trump that I found. And still he only had about a 20% shot leading up to the election to win in that model. And Nate Silver was getting blasted for even giving Trump that much of a chance. And then people were blasting Nate Silver after the fact when, you know, of his polling brethren, I think he was probably the most accurate. But I'm going to talk about the polls. I talked about the polls a lot in my previous episode, uh, episode 21, Why Donald Trump Wins. I talked a lot about why I don't think they are that reliable because it's very difficult for them to to encompass and capture enthusiasm. It's very difficult. And there was a bias in most places in this country to saying that you supported Donald Trump. It was far more socially acceptable for you to say Hillary Clinton or say I'm not supporting anybody than to say that you supported Donald Trump. So when a poll when a pollster asks you something, yes, you may not be doing it consciously, but when you talk to somebody, you and you want to say what you think they want you to say, you know what they want to hear. That's part of being human. So people that maybe were on the fence or otherwise were probably planning on voting for Donald Trump may have said I'm not voting for anybody. Or maybe even would have said I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. I, I doubt that happened much. But I said I think it's going to be turnout for Trump that ends up winning it for him. And what was most interesting about it is really how he won. Michael Moore called this back in, I think, in July or August, you know, months ago. He talked about, he's he's from Michigan, from Flint, Michigan. And he knows the people from that area. He knows the he knows how the factories have left. He knows how people are struggling. And he said that Trump very realistically could win these classically Democratic strongholds. For him, he was talking most about Michigan, but also into Wisconsin as well. Um, and then by extension, it's a similar issue into Ohio and Pennsylvania, really that rust belt. And that's exactly what happened. He took all those states... Most of them looked like they were teetering toward Clinton. They all looked like they'd be close, but you thought Clinton would probably win a majority of them, and that's why she would win the Electoral College, at least according to the polls. That's what most people were saying. But Trump really ran the table. It was pretty incredible. And I think I'm not enthused about the results. I'm not encouraged by a Donald Trump presidency. But love or hate this result, this is going to be an election that's going to, that's going to be in the history books. You know, regardless of what happens in a Donald Trump administration, this is one of the biggest comebacks really in political history. I don't want to hyperbolize this, but there has not been a presidential race like this in American politics. Nobody has ever stepped out from you know being a, a private individual and just won the presidency like this. And nobody's done it against somebody that's been a part of the machine for so long, like Hillary Clinton. So for Trump to do what he did and have this just bizarre campaign, really, and have his family basically running his campaign 
yes, he did bring on quite a few establishment people, and there was a ragtag group of advisors kind of as it grew, as it grew from, yeah, I'm going to run for some free publicity in, in the Republican primaries to being a legitimate contender and then winning the Republican nomination. He, he His campaign staff grew, and he did bring some established people some some establishment people into his group but just a bizarre campaign and a bizarre race really there's nothing like it and i've talked about on this podcast the influence of the mainstream or of the independent media and how the mainstream media has really lagged behind in this cycle what the independent media is doing and how the internet and specifically social networks Twitter is the number one social network that I talk about. I'm probably biased because that's the one that I'm on the most. But the way that Twitter enables anybody with an internet connection or a smartphone and access to Twitter to be able to get their opinions out there and be able to break stories, it's been fascinating. The role that InfoWars played in this election, really unprecedented. You, you could not have predicted so many different things that happened throughout this cycle if you were trying to do it say back in 2012 if you were trying to predict what the 2016 race would look like nobody could have guessed this i know nobody could have guessed donald trump becoming the president but all the other things that happened and the the people that emerged as players in this campaign how anthony weiner came back out at the very end and ended up influencing this campaign you know how someone like mike cernovich played such a huge role on twitter when nobody had heard of him prior to this race. And like I said before, InfoWars played a big role when they were really a, a fringe network beforehand. I'm not saying they're still not fringy in a lot of aspects, but they broke several stories that really did influence this campaign. And Rachel Maddow did an entire segment on her show about InfoWars, about Alex Jones. They got to the heads of the mainstream media, and I don't I still don't think they know how to handle this. They're obviously panicked about a Donald Trump presidency, but I think that's kind of irrelevant in their minds. They're looking at the future, and I think this is how the game is going to be played from here on out. I don't think you're going to have these huge outlets dictating the message. You're going to have these groups. You're going to have somebody like the alt-right, groups like the alt-right emerging, or whether the next election, whether it's uh, the Bernie coalition on the left, the progressive coalition on the left, whoever it is that, that are emerging, and there are going to be these people that come up out of nowhere and influence these elections. I think that's how it's going to look moving forward. Now, can I, can I speak with any sort of authority as to whether Donald Trump is going to fundamentally change the Republican Party or fundamentally change the electoral map moving forward? I don't think I really can give anything more than speculation on that at this point. I do think that we are seeing the Republican Party move more toward protectionism and as a result populism because that is an, that is an economic bias that a majority of the country holds, that protection is good and that free trade is something we should be suspicious of or distrustful of. And that worked for him. And... It's weird that the Democrats now are the party of freer trade. I still wouldn't call them the party of free trade. But if you're comparing the race that Donald Trump just won and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, I think Clinton and Obama do 
speak more about free trade generally being beneficial while Trump is just across the board distrustful of it. So I hate to continually go back to my episode 21, but I'm kind of using that as a jumping off point of specific things I want to discuss because that already fits in with the overall message of this show. Uh, But I drew a lot of parallels between Trump and Brexit. But once again, the working class, working class whites specifically here, determine the outcome of this race, just like they did in the United Kingdom. The white working class turned out and voted for Trump similarly, similarly to how blacks turned out and voted for Barack Obama. It wasn't quite at those levels. Like in 2012, blacks came out and voted 95% for Barack Obama, and whites as a whole voted 58% for Donald Trump, which is a pretty... You know, pretty healthy number in favor of Trump, but it wasn't a landslide. But then amongst poorer whites, the, that percentage went up. I don't have that percentage in front of me. I'm going to have a breakdown in the show notes page to, to show that. It may have gone up to, you know, somewhere in the 60s among poor whites in favor of Donald Trump. But I want to give a newsflash to the media and the out-of-touch left. If you keep calling a group of people racist, bigots, sexists, there's going to be backlash. And in this case, Donald Trump was the embodiment of that backlash. I think a big part of it is that these people thought that Donald Trump served their economic interests better. They heard somebody talking about bringing back jobs. uh, And I don't think that's going to happen, of course. I don't think that's going to work out in their favor. I don't think Trump's going to do anything that actually can help these people. And I think that if he can enact the kind of protectionism that he's talking about, it's going to hurt working class people the most because free trade benefits the poorest among us the most you know if you're looking at benefits of free trade across the board the poorest and the ability to shop at walmart and get inexpensive goods have helped the you know the poorest among us that that shop disproportionately at walmart compared to everybody else it's helped them the most and i know it's difficult to see sometimes when you're just thinking about jobs and yeah, you can keep jobs in America by preventing companies from leaving and by basically forcing them to stay in the U.S. I'll probably touch a little more on his protectionism later, though I don't want to get too deep into the weeds right now. Uh, another major thing I want to discuss is that I hope that Democrats are now finally realizing that allowing Barack Obama to consolidate as much power in the presidency and the executive branch as he has was dangerous. Libertarians tried to warn you. You know, we saw this happen under George W. Bush. You opposed it at the time. You know, you were on our side to to limit executive power. But as soon as your guy gets in there, you stop paying attention. And you allow Obama to continue to, to gain more and more power, more power by executive order, and really taking away power, not just from the other branches of the federal government, but from the states. It's continued under Barack Obama. And yes, I think a lot of progressives and Democrats thought that Hillary Clinton would take the White House and she'd be able to use that power in the way that they like. But it's dangerous. All it takes is for the other guy to get into power and he he or she can use that power in any way that that they see fit. And liberals should be very concerned about this. And liberals are talking about... Uh, Democrats, you know, not classical liberals. 
because Trump can now get into into power and he has quite a bit of power to wield. And I'm concerned about that. I you know, I don't know if I'm panicking quite to the level that uh, that a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters are crying out on the streets and protesting, but I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about a lot of the things that he said and you know, I, I don't want any individual wielding that much power in the executive branch. But Donald Trump certainly would not be high up on my list among people that I would want to be wielding that power. So hopefully, liberals, you can come back onto our side and we can form a coalition again to limit executive power. And the cat may be out of the bag at this point. It may be too late to ever really be able to rein this thing in. I'm not sure. It's kind of unprecedented. It's hard to look at history because this is a unique country and it's difficult to always draw parallels to the Roman Empire or uh, you know other other large empires over time. And I am calling the U.S. an empire because it's a clearly the most powerful country in the world and has a presence all over the world. Uh, third, I think, so of these three main topics I wanted to cover, the absolute hypocrisy of the left should be clearer now more than ever. They tried to tell us that Trump's campaign was the campaign of fear. We kept hearing that. You know, uh, there was fear and hate. That was what Trump's campaign was based on. And Hillary Clinton's campaign was based on love and inclusion and, uh, and hope for the future. But go out and read what these Hillary Clinton supporters are saying today. I, I implore you, go out, go out and read them. And tell me that these people are hopeful. And I know that they're not hopeful because Donald Trump is in office. But they're spewing all these emotional responses to a Trump victory that are just so unrealistic. I, I had a couple that I, that I read on my Facebook and Twitter feeds, but... I, I read from one person that he expects the U.S. to be attacked imminently because Donald Trump is now president. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I saw another person that said that the earth is going to be spinning toward a horrendous climate change within the next year, which I didn't know that either. Um, and I saw more people than I'd like to see disparaging all of white America and disparaging all white people so the left they they criticize the republicans to no end for resisting obama's election eight years ago and when people came out and said this isn't my president or you know whatever they said some of the same things that were said following the donald trump victory i don't remember protests like this of course social media wasn't quite as big back in 2008 as it is now. And then in 2012, Obama was such an overwhelming favorite that it was pretty clear he was going to win and that Mitt Romney didn't have a great shot in that election. So back in 2008, I don't really remember anything like this happening among the Republicans, among those that opposed Barack Obama. Yeah, there were a lot of people that resisted it, but were there protests in the streets? Were there thousands of people in a bunch of major cities throughout the country? I don't think so. So 
I, I hate hypocrisy. That's probably the number one thing I hate and that I'm going to criticize people for on this podcast. And the left is just so easy to criticize for this, to call out for hypocrisy. Now, the Republicans are guilty of it just as often, probably close to just as often. I would say probably the left has them beat by a bit. But the left is just so easy. And, and throughout this cycle, just seeing their smugness when Hillary Clinton was clearly ahead and then seeing her lose and now their reaction to it, it is just... It's somewhat satisfying. I, I wish it was my candidate winning. You know, I wish it was somebody that I really supported winning. Then I could take, I think, more satisfaction in what's happening. But seeing the smiles taken off their faces when they've been so smug throughout this process and really have invented a lot of a lot of what's happened throughout this cycle, I can't say that I'm disappointed that they had to eat crow. Another thing I wanted to make sure that I discussed before I get into really what does a Trump presidency mean for us? That's the ultimate point of this. I do want to talk about the backlash from everybody else, but I think the reason why people listen to this show is because they want to hear what do I see happening moving forward. Uh, And the one thing I wanted to address was this Van Jones video where he called this a white lash and then talked about minorities being afraid to wake up in the morning after the election results he said what am i going to tell my children very sensationalist and van jones i don't think i've ever discussed him on this podcast but if you haven't heard of him or been familiar with him he's actually a self-avowed communist he has said that Uh, He was the green jobs czar under Barack Obama. I think he was special advisor for green jobs or his title was something like that. And then he was forced to quit after making some controversial comments. Obama didn't force him to quit, but I think he quit to take himself out of the public eye after those comments came out. And I'll, I'll have a little bit about him. It doesn't really matter, I guess, what his history is. It's much more about this video, and this was shared all over Facebook, all over Twitter. Saw a lot of people discussing it, saying, oh, Van Jones put just what I wanted to say into words. And what I want to say is I don't think that racism or race really even was at the center of this election result. If you look at where Donald Trump won this won this election, really, It was in those working class counties in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And in a lot of those counties, Obama won by double digits. You know, won very healthily back in 2012, just four years ago. Now, I'm not saying that if you voted for a black president, it means that you're not racist, but I think if a if an area goes overwhelmingly for a black president, chances are that area probably isn't too bigoted. You know, probably isn't one of the most bigoted areas in the country. I'd be I think it's pretty safe to make that assumption. But those areas, those counties shifted over to Trump. Hillary barely won some of them, and then Trump actually handily won a lot of them. And that's what won him those states. So that was what won Trump the election. 
I refuse to believe that those people fundamentally changed over the last four years. I think the far more plausible explanation for why he won in those areas is because he appealed to their economic interests. I said that earlier in the show. I think he just said, yeah, I want to bring back jobs here. And for most people, that's enough. This guy's talking about what I think my problem is. My problem is my job is gone. He's going to bring it back. So I'm voting for him. And I think it was as simple as that. And I don't think Hillary Clinton did enough to capture that vote. Now, am I denying that there was a racist faction within the Donald Trump supporters? No, I'm not denying that. There was certainly an element of that throughout the campaign. I don't think Trump pushed it to the extent that people want to say that he pushed it. But there certainly was a racist element within his support. And I'm sure there was a racist element within the support of Hillary Clinton. You know, if we want to talk about Black Lives Matter being racist, and you know, that's something that people commonly say that Black Lives Matter, it, a, a lot of that's become black supremacy, a black supremacist movement. A lot of them fell in line right behind Clinton. So are we going to now denigrate the entire Clinton campaign and call them call that a racist campaign because there's a there's a racist faction behind Clinton? I think that's all this was. At best, it was a fringe reason why Trump won. But I don't even know if it warrants being a fringe reason why Donald Trump won. And I also hate the double standard that blacks can vote 95% for Barack Obama in the 2012 election. And then whites come out and vote 58% for one candidate. That means... About 40% voted for Hillary Clinton, probably a little bit less, 38 to 40%. I don't know what in total Johnson and Stein got among the uh, among the white vote, probably 3 to 4% in total. But that's not an overwhelming majority. And it's not showing that now whites are moving in solidarity to try to exclude everybody else. I just don't think that's happening. And I think anybody that's trying to spread that message today that now you should wake up in America and and be scared to be different, be scared to be a Muslim, or be scared to be Mexican. I, I don't think that this election fundamentally changes all the people that live around you and that they're now going to be empowered for some reason to start committing crimes against people or committing violence against people. I I don't think that's going to happen. I don't believe that one that one instance like this, somebody different becoming president, completely shifts the landscape of what's happening in this country. And of course, the Trump is literally Hitler people will tell me, well, what happened when Hitler was elected chancellor of Germany and he was democratically elected and, you know, look what happened there. Of course that can happen. I'm, I, I'm not saying it's 100% fact that there won't be racial strife in the United States. I'm not saying, I'm just saying I don't see it happening. I really don't think that the election, especially as close as this was, it wasn't like Trump came in and got 75% of the white vote and got 60% of the popular vote and just destroyed, steamrolled over the rest of the United States. That did not happen. This was a very close election. Hillary Clinton looks like she's going to win the popular vote. Uh, 
so I don't think that race was at the center of this. And that's what everybody wants to make this out to be. And I just, I don't see it. And it's an easy way to explain something. I would, it would make my job easier if that's what it was. If you could explain it as being racist, it's easy to say, well, yeah, it was racism that won Donald Trump the election. I could have a 30 second long show and be done. But I think it was more complex than that. I also wanted to talk about, I, I apologize, this came up kind of as I was just talking now about Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote, but losing the election in, in the Electoral College. And now you're seeing a lot of um, a lot of Democrats coming out and criticizing the Electoral College and the idea of, of the Electoral College. Now I'm going to link to a podcast that Brian McClanahan did. If you haven't listened to the Brian McClanahan show, he's a historian. He wrote the book. Uh, nine presidents who screwed up America and four who tried to save her. I hope I got that perfectly right. I'll link to that book as well because it's fantastic. Uh, but he he runs a podcast and he did a great podcast on the Electoral College and about why he supports it and why it was originally included in you know in the founding of the United States and how how would we elect the president and really the purpose was due to states' rights and you didn't want certain far more populous states being able to steamroll the rest of the country or you know being able to steamroll parts of the country and i think it served its purpose relatively well in that regard it it really has been able to allow for the red states which tend to be less populous to be able to mount a defense against the blue states which which tend to be far more populous and I think it's I think it served that purpose. And anybody that wants to go to a popular vote system, that would scare me a lot. Yes, the electoral college system has its flaws, and I don't think it's perfect. But at the same time, I think we're a constitutional republic for a reason. And if you try to make this a direct democracy, which it's pretty close to having become... But I think you take away that level of, you know, one layer of removal between the president and the people. And it does have to go through the states. And that way the states determine how their elections are run and then how their electoral votes are divided. And it, give, it preserves some power for the states in this process. And obviously in the, uh, in the primaries and caucuses, the states are free to do what they want to determine how they're going to allocate their delegates for the, you know, for the two particular party nominees. So I'm in favor of the electoral college and I think it's short-sighted to want to go to a direct democracy. And I think going to direct democracy in this sense and just going with who gets more votes wins I think it's it would increase agitation amongst the red states, and I think you you very well can see states like California and New York steamrolling the rest of the country. Now, of course, I've talked about this before. I think the United States is too big, and I don't know if it's feasible for it to be ruled by one government with so much power in Washington, D.C. for 330 million people from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. I don't know how sustainable that is long term, but I think moving toward direct democracy to elect the president would only 
accelerate that process toward secession or toward division or whatever it may be, whatever the process would be by which people start to lose faith in Washington, D.C. and lose faith in having this one federal government in one country. Um, you know, not, I'm not saying let's have an armed rebellion against Washington, D.C. or anything like that. I'm saying I think you'll start to see secession being raised more and more often as a realistic option to be able to have a state, a separate state from the United States where your electorate, which is far more homogenous than the electorate across the entire United States, can determine how they want to be governed. Rather than having this power far removed in Washington, D.C., being able to dictate to them where, you know, you may have, let's say, the Republicans stay in power, you know, rather than having the Republicans be able to exert so much power on California from afar, then now California can remove itself from that power and be able to have a governing structure that's far more aligned with its electorate. I, th- I think you're going to see that raised more and more. I saw uh, Silicon Valley group coming out and talking about openly talking about secession for California. I'll find that article and link it on this show page as well. Uh, so now I'll finally get into what I see a Trump presidency bringing and, you know, will he be effective? What will his presidency look like? And I'm concerned. The first real policy prescription he discussed in his first speech as president, so his victory speech, was that he wants a massive infrastructure spending program. I think the bigger story under a Trump presidency will be that he expands government. And some people, I don't know, they have this Democrat-Republican divide. They think that Republicans are for smaller government, Democrats are for bigger government. So Donald Trump, as a result, wants to come in and, and cut all social programs and shrink government. That's not really the case. If anything, Trump has been, Trump has out-progressivized, I know that's not a word, He's out-progressivized Hillary Clinton on a lot of these issues. And if he comes through on those promises, he has to expand government. And he has to spend significantly more money than is being spent now under Obama, which is one of the most profligate administrations in American history. He absolutely has to if he keeps these promises, if he wants to maintain Social Security and expand it. He wants a paid family leave program. He wants to give everybody everything really and that's what he promised all along the campaign trail uh so i think that's what i'm most concerned about i I talk a lot on the show about how i would like to see government power reduced and you know bring power back to state and local levels ideally but i don't see that happening under donald trump unless everything that he has said has just been political theater and he's actually a lot smarter than he's led on to and that's his plan all along to now, okay, I'm going to come in and I actually am going to drain the swamp. I actually am going to come in and shrink government and cut a lot of these entitlements that people have been used to for far too long. Maybe he will do that. I I don't think he will. I think drain the swamp was very catchy little slogan. Uh, I kind of developed into a little slogan, but I don't really see him doing that. And if you look at who he surrounded himself with, too, if you watch that victory speech, if you've heard about his potential nominees for various positions in his cabinet, Rudy Giuliani is a common name, maybe Attorney General. Uh, 
Chris Christie is another name. He mentioned Mike Huckabee was was there at that victory speech. A lot of establishment neoconservative type people are being mentioned as likely cabinet members under a Trump presidency. So I think it's going to be more of the same. I think ultimately he'll be more of a figurehead with kind of this group of insiders around him, with the insiders handling all the stuff behind the scenes, and I think we'll have a lot of the same. That's why I've been trying to say to Hillary Clinton supporters, I don't really see a big difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in terms of size of government or in terms of the types of people they're going to have around. Hillary Clinton is far more similar to these neocons that Trump is talking about having as potential cabinet members. She's far more similar to them than Trump is to them. So I don't really see there being much difference on that front. I am hoping that what Trump has said in terms of being a little bit more anti-war, I think he's not he's he's not a non-interventionist, but he's far more in that direction than Hillary is. Hillary's talked about ringing China for basically disobeying America and I'd be very concerned about uh, Russian and US relations under Hillary Clinton far more than I am under now the Donald Trump presidency. So I think the chances of a war with one of those major powers has gone down. For whatever reason, people keep saying they think that it's gone up. You know, a lot of people that are freaking out about a Trump presidency, but based on Hillary Clinton's record, you know, you have, you have a record and then you have what's been said in this campaign. And Trump's, for the most part, said that, you know what, I'd like to make deals I'd like to make deals with these countries. I don't want to be enemies with them if I can avoid it. Now, if they want to be enemies, we'll be enemies. I think that's at least a a better solution than what Clinton says, that there's always some sort of way that we can get involved and that there's some sort of solution with us intervening. And that hasn't worked, and it's not going to work. So that's one area where I'm very cautiously optimistic about Trump versus Clinton, but... With Trump surrounding himself with all these neocons, I think that it's probably going to be very similar to what we've had and probably somewhat similar to what we had under a, or what we would have had under Hillary Clinton presidency. So I had a request from a close friend of mine, a listener, and he wanted me to discuss my opinions on infrastructure spending. So he said, I heard about Trump discussing this, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. I know that the U.S. infrastructure is in poor shape and that we will need to spend money on it eventually. So I know it's a classic Keynesian stimulus-type work project, but what do you think about it? I know that you tend to not like, you being me, he said this to me, I know that you tend to be more against big spending projects by government, and uh, I'd just like to hear what you think about it. So infrastructure spending seems to have a pretty positive reputation on both sides of the political aisle, so it's pretty unpopular to oppose it in a lot of circles. And with the generally poor state of infrastructure in the United States, like my friend had acknowledged when he said that to me, it said that it's a necessity to make investments, and I'm putting that in quotes, to bolster it. First of all, though, like so many of the things, so many of the things that people want the federal government to get involved in, it really shouldn't be a federal issue. 
So there's no constitutional authority for the federal government to spend on infrastructure except to erect post offices and post roads. That's what the Constitution says. And, you know, most of the infrastructure, a, a bridge is in a state. You know, it's, it's in New York. That's up to New York to determine how to build or up to the municipality where the bridge is to determine how to build. That's not up to the federal government to spend money and allocate it to the states and then, you know, however they do it, however, however they plan to make these huge infrastructure projects work. It's not a federal issue, so it should not be federal money. You know, I shouldn't have a little portion of my tax dollars being taken into Washington, D.C., and then being sent out all across the country to all these bridges that I probably will never use once in my entire life. It should be ideally, I mean, ideally it would be built by private companies and there'd be user fees. And so only the people that use it would actually pay for it. There would be some sort of toll system for these bridges until they were repaid. Or, you know, there could be say businesses or homeowners on either side of a, of a river and they agree for the sake of all of them that they're going to come in and pool money together to build a bridge and not charge anybody to use it so that business can come across on both sides over this bridge. You know, what, whatever it may be, ideally, in my ideal world, that's how it would be done. In my theoretical world, that would be the way to do it because you wouldn't have people that never drive or never leave their houses having to pay taxes to fund something they'll never use in their entire lives. But... That's not really the discussion here. It's really about who has the authority in our political system to dictate infrastructure spending. And it's at the state and local level. So in our system, that's where this needs to come from. This, It's not constitutional to impose a federal infrastructure program on the entire country. It just isn't. But let's take another step back and not talk about constitutionality. And I want to discuss this type of stimulus and its costs and benefits. So say we didn't have a constitution at all and the federal government could do whatever it wanted. So we'll take that topic out of the equation. Take that, um, you know, that what I, what I just discussed out of the equation. What are the costs and benefits? The first point I want to make is that if the government's going to pour money into the economy, infrastructure probably is one of the less destructive ways to do it you know, compared to printing a ton of money or handing out checks to every American or redistributing wealth in, in some other way to try to ramp up spending. You know, at least with infrastructure spending, there is something tangible to show for it afterwards. Uh, but that being said, just because I'm saying that infrastructure spending is the least of all those evils that I mentioned, doesn't mean that I think it would be a good idea. So what does infrastructure spending dictated by the government do? It takes resources away from the private productive sector to spend it where the government sees fit. And so we need to really consider where is this money being taken from because it's taking money away from private businesses and individuals that otherwise would be undergoing their own projects and hiring people to work on those projects. And this takes me back to Bastiat's idea of you need to look at not just what is seen, but also what is unseen. And what is seen is easy to see. So you see with an, with an infrastructure program, these people have jobs, they're 
making money. They're going and they're spending money in the local shop and the, the local business owner is happy. That's what you see. So if you're just looking at that level of analysis, you think this is great. You know, these people are better off than they otherwise would be because of this infrastructure spending, because of this federal program. But if you need, if you're looking another level deeper at what's unseen, you need to think about that money was taken either by taxing somebody. So those taxes would have come out of the private productive sector, like I said, and taken away from other projects 